I, I think we might have something up here. Yeah, yeah, I hear the, I hear the, I hear the chain. I do too. I think it's big. You think it's a big one? Yeah, probably yeah. down the track. I what got in it. Oh man, we better slow down a little bit. Back up a little. Let's take it easy. Yep. Yeah. I'm starting to get a little scared. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we got big. one. Yeah. What the heck is this? Oh, you got? Oh what? my God, that's a big one. That is the biggest thing I've ever heard. That's I scary. I know, right? That's big. That thing's mad. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Oregon Trappers Association podcast. The Oregon Trappers Association strives to combine heritage and tradition with today's need to manage, control, and conserve Oregon's wildlife resources. I'm your host, Andrew Dehart. So to start off the show, like always, we want to thank our sponsors. So a big shout out to Idaho Trappers Association the National Trappers Association and their best management practice, the Fur Takers of America, Oregon Territorial Council on Furs, Max Traps and Trapping Supplies, and Nitem's Ace Hardware, located in John Day. Anyhow, let's get into the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode. This week, we're sitting down with Scott Hill. I met Scott a couple weeks ago up at a wolf trapping certification class in Idaho. He graciously decided to uh, come on the show, and I think today we're going to sit down and talk about uh, apex predators and kind of their relation and um, how we should manage them and go about that. And Anyhow, Scott, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you on. You know, um, just sitting down in that class um, at the beginning of November here, you know, I learned so much that, that I mean, you, you gave us just a wealth of information. And I honestly, right off the bat, I was like, okay, I got to have this guy on the show. Oh, thank you. I, you know what? I always feel a little bit bad on the wolf class because I've got five hours to try and get you as much information as possible. And you guys are definitely drinking from a fire hose when I'm doing it. I, I try to give you as much information as I can. And I, I really wish I had another day to go in the field, you know, and, and just go out and do some sets because we, we spend so much time, you know, rightly we spend so much time talking about regulations and ethics and making sure everybody's, um, just being very cognizant of the responsibility they have to do um, their job as, as cleanly and professionally as possible that we, we have to concentrate on that in the class, but it, it is uh, it's tough when you have all that, you know, trappers are, are like, are like traps. They do. It's just fun. You know, most guys are kind of like inspector gadget. They like to see the, the tools and um, that class there is such a, uh, a, a pile, a plethora of unbelievable traps that most people have never seen. And you just want to play with them when you're having the class. It's just because half of those traps are out of the price range of most people. You know, a lot of the wolf traps are, um, they're, they're incredible. I, uh, probably half the traps on the market for wolves are handmade right now, one at a time. And they're very expensive. Um and and uh, they're over many of them are well over a hundred dollars, you know. So it it uh, it's hard for people to not start want you know they 
I can tell when people start nodding off, everybody just wants to come up front and start playing with equipment, you know, and, and we, we try to do that to keep people from getting too bored while we're talking. Well, no, and it, you're right. It is, um, it, it's kind of exciting there, you know, you're sitting there and you're looking at this, this big trap that most generally people don't use in their, in their life. Um, you know, most, most things that people trap are no bigger than a coyote. And so you get into, into larger predators, like a, like a wolf or a mountain lion or something like that. And it's impressive how, um, you know, what those wolf traps look like, how they're built, the different techniques people are using, um, to try and make a better wolf trap. And at the same time, um, I think it would be beneficial for others who don't understand trapping to look at a wolf trap and actually see how small it actually is. Because I think some people still think we go out and we set these giant bear traps for things. Oh yeah, yeah, they weigh sixty pounds and they got teeth in them. Yeah, all the all the uh, stereotypes that are totally inaccurate. You know, it's I, I think a lot of people, including trappers, would be very surprised to learn that just how many land traps at this point, virtually not all of them, but close to all of the traps that are typically used on land are now uh, have offset jaws. And by offset jaws, I I know you know, Andrew, but uh, there's a gap between the jaws so that the the trap is designed to make a a pad catch, a foot catch on the, the target animal and hold them like handcuffs. It's just like putting a cuff on and not and do the minimum amount of damage because if you think about it if you're trying to hold this animal by its foot there is zero advantage for damaging it's it, it, anything you want that to be just as strong as it can possibly be so the the evolution of the foot trap has led to offset jaw traps that we now use I have used as a capture and uh, release trap for telemetry studies and um, and stocking animals, catching them one place and moving them to another, you can effectively do that with um, set jaw traps. Whereas uh, full jaw traps that are typically used in water trapping, where animals are often dispatched within a few minutes, um, those traps are still have full jaws in them because it, it, the because the goal there is to make sure that the animal is is dispatched as quickly as possible. So. They both have their place, but I, I don't think a lot of people realize just how much time, energy, and effort has gone into making traps used on land as safe as possible. I've caught dozens and dozens of dogs in the east. Everybody and their brother let their dogs out. In you know, in Ohio, there are eleven and a half million people, and in Idaho, there's one point seven. And this, and Idaho is a bigger state, you know, geographically. So it, it um. Catching dogs was a relatively common occurrence when you were fox or coyote trapping in Ohio. So we we got to be pretty good at catching and letting dogs out of traps. You know, we do what we could to avoid them. But when you caught them, it wasn't a nightmare. You just let them out and they went home. It was no big deal. And uh, it's, you know, the, the traps that we use for wolves are larger than coyote traps. And they do have heavier springs and larger jaw spreads. So you have to be that much more careful. But caught my myself in those traps many times and you know you just have to get your feet on the springs and compress them and get out you know and 
it's it's um it's it's one of those things that's extremely difficult to explain, especially to someone that has no experience trapping, because trappers have worked really hard to make this as as humane as possible, and uh, and we keep doing it. We keep coming up with new ways of doing it. Box traps have uh, advanced like crazy in the last few decades, and and um, even even snares. You know, we have people that have come up with systems for slipping surgical tubing over cable and, and using them as a live trap, uh, a foot snare system. Um, there's a lot of different innovations out there and, and a lot to learn, a lot to know. And you, you're never done. I mean, it's a lifelong learning process. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it goes to show you that we do care. We're not out there to just cause this animal pain. We're out there to catch this animal, yes, and harvest this animal. And that's, you know, that's a circle of life. And we, you know, humans weren't developed to, to run down animals to hunt or to harvest them. We were built to use our brains. And so we make tools and we make very efficient tools. And, you know, trapping as a whole how it's evolved, it is the best management tool to um, to use for any species, you know, but especially your apex predators or your fur bearers. You know, if you want to study them, you have to catch them. You have to catch them to take the data and, and look at them, and traps by far are the most efficient way to do it. They are, and, and something that frequently, if not, almost all the time gets lost in translation when wildlife research gets done. Probably the rarest piece of that machine is the trapper at this point. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of study in wildlife management. We have an awful lot of students that go into ecology and, and courses where they want to do study on wildlife. But if there's actually a, a capture and release program, whether it's a capture recapture population study or a telemetry study, um, you need to know, you need to find somebody who knows how to catch them. And, um, and that's a challenge because at, at the universities, a lot of universities will, they all have, if they're doing research like that, they all have an animal welfare. And that board has to decide on what research gets done and what doesn't get done. And often, often the very well-educated people on that board have very, very little experience with capturing wildlife. And so they're making decisions like we were talking about before without the necessary context. So it, it's important that we um, as trappers remember that and be willing to, to, to be generous with our time and go and explain stuff and bring props and show them. And um, that I, I was always baffled by guys that had a hard time finding places to trap. I, I spend 12 months a year talking to people about wildlife and trapping. And my biggest challenge is I usually have two or three times as much ground as I can cover in a year to where I have permission to trap. But that, that lets me rotate stuff. So I'll, I'll talk with the, animal, with the property owners about the animals that they want me to, to capture. And I'll say, you know what we're going to do? I'll come in and I'll, I'll, I'll catch as many as I can where you're having problems. And then we'll rest it for a year and take a look and see how they're doing. And that, that was super effective for, you know, like beaver and muskrat trapping. Muskrat are pretty prolific, but beaver, you can go in and clean out a colony pretty fast if you know what you're doing. Or you can go in 
and set traps away from the lodge and away from the dam and you'll likely catch the mature beaver only and then leave the the two-year-olds and the one-year-olds there for for seed let them grow up and and for conservation trapping that's what we want to do you know we're going to get far more money for the larger animals than we are for the smaller ones and fur is really not worth anything these days or very little i should say um by comparison and if you account for inflation and stuff i i made way more money on muskrats in the late 70s early 80s than um than you do on a mink today i mean it's just uh the whole game has changed largely because of uh, of politics and and rules about shipping stuff uh, russia and china both consume a lot of our of the fur from the u.s and and uh we're not doing a lot of trade back and forth right now so that that's impact all of that but if you if you look at the long-term process of trapping not just for this year but following years i have beaver ponds in ohio that i trapped for 30 years i'd go there i'd catch a couple beaver out and i'd leave it alone for two years and then i come back and i'd catch a couple 50 pound beaver out of there leave it alone and it would it, it was it was almost like you were farming you know it was almost you were you were leaving the necessary seed back in terms of young beaver so that they would then assume the role of the dominant beaver in that area and they'd make their own lodge and their own dam and they'd set up shop you know and it, it uh the longer you do it the more appreciation you have for it no absolutely and you know i think I think people get the idea too that, um, you know, they kind of, I, I guess the stereotype that I was just thinking about here, uh, they think traps are these evil things and they say, well, why don't you just go out and, and if you want to go catch animals, why don't you just go set a cage? And then if you, you harvest the animal, he, he hasn't been hurt. Yeah, you harvested him, whatever, this, that, the other. You don't have to use that foothold. And and going into, you know, into that, trapping is unique with foothold traps because not everything can be caught in a cage. And I'm not going to try and knock on the Forest Service too much here, but I talked to one of their guys a couple of years ago. They were doing a study on the Sierra Nevada Red Fox up in the Cascades and and, you know, I said, well, hey, let me see your setup here. And they just showed a, ca a cage with some hot dogs in the back. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's not it's not just straightforward. There's a lot of thought that goes into trappings. I mean, not just the equipment, but like you said, the management of it, too. If you do it correctly, like trappers do, you know, we don't want to catch every single beaver in a pond you know they right. there's this misconception that it's still like the 1800s where you know hordes of guys yeah. just went through an area trapped out everything and moved on that is not right. today's um trapper today's trapper wants to go back and catch more next year right and all we'd be doing is just counterproductive for our long-term goals mm -hmm. uh, it makes sense now you know, that being said, I've, I've done work for, for departments of transportation and farmers and landowners where the beaver were doing serious damage, plugging up culverts and, and flooding out fields and timber. And, and in that situation, you're getting hired to, to get rid of them. You right. know, and then you have to do that in that area. 
And then I, we also did, this is the, the other side of that equation. Trapping was one tool in our toolbox for resolving conflict. I would install USDA details, a, a system called a flow pipe for beaver. And all you really do is tear the dam out down to the old creek bed, install a 20 foot or sometimes longer piece of uh, 12 or you have to size it for the flow there, 12 or 18 inch culvert. And you put a cap on the upstream end of it and screw it in so it can't come out. And then you drill a series of two inch holes in the cap and in the pipe on the portion that's upstream from the dam. You cross stake it and wire it real hard so it can't be moved. And the beaver come back after you've done this, rebuild the dam, but the upstream end is now perf pipe. So it is allowing water to flow through. So it lowers it, it lowers that beaver dam until they're able, they eventually figure out that they have to build up a mound of mud, you know, 15 feet of it going up into the pond and about three feet high over the pipe. So you really, I'd have to go in twice a year usually and clean those out to keep them functional. And I've, I've had beaver just completely bury them with mud to the point where I had to, I had to re-excavate everything. And that, that was um, a pretty effective tool for beaver because they get discouraged and they just move their pond to another location. And it, it worked pretty well. It was actually, um, I did some work on um, some, uh, I believe it was Audubon Society in Ohio that had some big wetlands, but they their, their roads for going in there and doing plantings and stuff were just constantly getting flooded out by beaver. They didn't want them caught, but they wanted they wanted to control the water level. So we that's what we did, you know. And that's that's the other thing that um, I think is underreported. Uh, trappers have a variety of tools in their toolboxes pretty often for resolving some of the problems. No, absolutely, and and you made a great um, distinction between trapping recreationally, trapping for fur. And trapping for nuisance. ADC work is different than um, recreational trapping. If I'm going out and want to catch beaver in a pond, great. I catch a couple, I move on. If I'm being hired to get rid of these these beaver because they are damaging something structural like a road or a culvert or a building, that is completely different. That is where the the human and nature interaction have to, you know, something has to give. And generally, the the hundred thousand dollar road that just got put in isn't going to go away compared to the you know handful of beaver that have decided we're going to make a pond right here next to this culvert. Yeah, I think we talked about it. I believe it was Massachusetts that outlawed beaver trapping some years ago and um in, in three years their road their department of transportation budget went up millions of dollars because they were spending so much time cleaning culverts because beaver were just plugging their road culverts with sticks and mud and it turned into a disaster for them so all of a sudden they they looked at they looked at the reality that was facing them and acknowledged that they needed to bring trapping back you know, trapper. See, that's the thing people don't realize. Trappers are doing this uh, on their own time. It is far and away the most cost-effective way to manage some of those fur bearers is to have trappers do it because 
they're paying the for the fuel and the equipment and and the um any uh, equipment for uh, skidding stretching transportation for selling them all that stuff that's all coming out of the trapper's pocket and but it's doing a service for that state no absolutely the uh you know it's a big difference between you know if i go out and i trap a ranch for a landowner and i get rid of their coyotes that's great they have to call in wildlife services or here in oregon they can call a wildlife control operator which is a private party that traps for the state for nuisance um they either got to pay it or you know wildlife services is paid out of a budget that eventually gets tracked all the way back to taxes and and you know so the public is paying for for wildlife management instead they could have people out there doing it on their own dime bingo it's kind of like the same argument we were talking about with deer where um now if you have a an urban or suburban community that has a very high deer population they can organize a um a safe place within that community to do an organized suburban deer hunt, or they can pay some money anywhere from 400 to over a thousand dollars a head to start removing the deer. And that's, that's kind of where we're at. What do you want? What would you prefer as a taxpayer? Mm-hmm. Which one makes the most sense if you're being fiscally responsible? Um, that those are, you know, these, these issues come up if you work I disclosure, I worked as an ADC private company all through the nineties. That's what my that was my full time job. And I was exposed to this stuff every day. So I became very familiar with it. But most of the people in the public don't have any sense of that. A lot of them don't even I I still remember a, a friend of mine that I I worked with in construction when I was in college and he we were talking about going duck hunting one time. And we were getting ready, and he was like, well, what, are you, what are you talking about getting ready? I was like, oh, you got to get, you know, steel shot, and you got to make sure that you have your, your sunrise and sunset times down. And, and I broke out the regs and showed him. He's like, there are rules for this? I was like, oh, oh, buddy, not just, not just state rules, but federal rules. You know, and he was absolutely shocked at the amount of regulations associated with, with waterfowl hunting. Uh, and that and and he was he's just an average guy, very smart guy, well-read guy, but he'd never been exposed to it, didn't have a clue about it. And uh, we have to keep all that stuff in mind while we're talking to people about about this. You know, it's important. The context, I can't overstate how important it is. No, absolutely. Education is the number one tool that we have and we have to use it because if. If people think of these old stereotypes and and their misconceptions about it, then um, and we don't take the time to try and educate them, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, yeah. But I like we talked about in the class. What I don't think a lot of the young people in the classes realize um, when when things get bad, and I've watched them get bad a couple of times. Uh, raccoon rabies outbreak in Ohio and white-tailed deer disease outbreaks, stuff like that. Um, the game agencies are calling everybody that has experience in that field to help them out because you gotta, you got to get after it in a, in a big way, in a hurry. And, and if you get into trapping at this point in time, it's a pretty exclusive club. 
there's only a few of us you know, that are really doing it anymore. And like we talked about in the wolf class, you know, the, the old timers that are part that are, we, we've all learned from, this is a trade that's passed down through generations. Um, a lot of them are getting pretty gray, you know, and when one of those guys dies, it's like a library burning down. They've got so much information in their head and we're trying to download as much of it as we can so we can teach young trappers uh, enough to get them going so they can start to learn on their own. And it's important because at some point we'll be needed. You know, we, we talked a little bit about Colorado and they, they voted to, um, bring in about 500 wolves in the Colorado, I believe. And they have the largest elk herd in the continental U.S. I think it's about 350,000 animals, if I'm not mistaken. With with that large of a prey base, the, the wolves will be able to get established, entrenched in Colorado, especially there's no foot traps in Colorado, at least not right now. Um, you got if you want to catch bobcats or you got to cage trap them. Um, the, the wolves will repopulate the every Meraki Mountain state when that happens. They're, they'll be everywhere, and and a lot of people are like it's awesome. They were here before us, and they were, and we want them back. We want an apex predator, and that it looks and sounds great. It's like a National Geographic special, but. The inevitability of conflict with humans, whenever there's an apex predator involved, I don't care if it's a mountain lion, a wolf, a bear, a grizzly, um, even coyotes. Coyotes are often, you know, in Ohio, coyotes are the apex predator. But we fail to acknowledge that for the last 10,000 years in the Pacific Northwest, man's been the real apex predator. And we end up kind of boxing ourselves in with our conservation goals and the cold hard realities of what it's like when you have apex predators living side by side with people. It's it, You just have to admit to yourself, to be honest with yourself, that you're going to have conflicts, whether it's livestock or, or pets. Um, you're, you, there are going to be some problems and we have to recognize that and think about it in a sober manner before we start something that is very, very difficult to reverse. Well, and you know, Scott, one of the things you made note of in the class that, that I really, um, kind of took to heart, if you will, let's use Colorado since you brought it up as a demonstration. Um, it, uh, so let's say there's 350,000 elk, okay? That's Colorado's elk herd. Um, you yep. drop this, what I would call a biological nuclear bomb in Colorado by reintroducing wolves. Wolves are very efficient hunters, and they're very efficient at taking down elk. They know what they need to do. These elk have not experienced being chased by wolves and so they don't know how to defend themselves against it. And it's going to take some time. So what you're going to have, you know, as you stated in the class, you're going to have this population explode with wolves. They're doing well. They're eating well. They're easy prey. And the elk's going to diminish. There's the nuclear part of it that everything blows up. And then those wolves either A, have to find a new prey source, which turns to deer or cows, livestock, 
pets, or they move. And they move into an area where there may already be wolves, and then there's another conflict, or you have a disease outbreak. You know, there's so many little fingers that can spread off from changing a biological diversity in an area. impacts. You know, a lot of the little towns, well, here in Idaho and in, in any any rural mountain state, a big chunk of their income comes from hunters and fishermen that come into the area and buy out-of-state licenses, out-of-state tags, fuel, food, lodging, hire an outfitter. All of that is money that comes from outside of that little town's economic pond. It, it, so it, it pumps new money into their economy and it's a critical financial component for those communities and if you have uh you know if you're i live in an area that was was very well known for elk and deer hunting and um we still have elk and deer but nothing like we did in the 80s and 90s from what i've been told i wasn't here then but i've seen the pictures and they had some great hunting here um so they we have a fraction of the outfitters left now that we had once upon a time. And we, you know, the little restaurants struggle and the hotels, you know, we're fortunate here where, where I live, we have 12 months of the year, steelhead and salmon fishing and smallmouth bass. We have fantastic fishing here. So the hotels made the shift and they're taking advantage of it, but they had to replace a big chunk of their annual income with another source. Because a lot of the hunters quit coming. You know, why would you spend 700 bucks on a tag and a license when you got a 5%, 10% success rate? You know, it, it, not when you can go to another state that has a much higher success rate for about the same money. And that's something we didn't really talk about in the wolf class, which um you and I've talked about the perils about of talking about politics, but it's really difficult to discuss this topic without at least mentioning politics. Um, if you think about it, if you are opposed to hunting and trapping, I mean, morally or, or uh, philosophically, just adamantly, nobody's convincing you it's terrible. You don't want it to happen. Um, what better, what better tool to use? than an apex predator. You know? Mm-hmm. You can, you can effectively get rid of a bunch of outfitters, discourage the hunters, uh, the towns that depend on hunting. Well, we don't care for them because they're leaning on hunting, so we'll destroy their businesses too. Um, we have to be real careful about this. It's a little bit, it's a little dark when you start thinking about it, but um, it's a reality. That's That's what ends up happening if you're not careful now, it, it nothing's forever and, and wildlife populations fluctuate. They go up and down. And like we discussed in the class, if you look at predator prey relationships, you, you hit on it when you talked about the, you know, the, the elk that have never seen a wolf and they have no idea how to, how to defend themselves or hide from them. They're pretty easy prey for wolves. So initially in the first couple of decades, there will likely be a, a fairly rapid increase in the, Apex, or in that case, the wolf population, and a fairly serious decrease in the in the prey species, which would be elk. Now, at some point, 
I think we just went through the tipping point a couple of years ago here in Idaho, just from what I'm observing. Um, the the price population will be lowered to the point where it's not as easy for the wolves to just go get a meal whenever they want to. They got to work at it more. And at that point, they'll start wandering, looking for better hunting, better, you know, more populated hunting grounds. And you'll have you'll notice a decrease in predators in a in a localized area when that happens. Now, when they when that happens, the elk that are here now, I think in the class we refer to it as the cow elk that are here now have been hiding from wolves their entire life. So when they raise a calf, they're teaching that calf how to avoid wolves. So as the elk population rebounds and then the wolves will move back into an area and prey on them, it won't be as easy as it was the first time around because now you have elk that are familiar with their hunting tactics so they will know ways to to lose them to hide from them and so eventually it'll stable out but when it first happens the peaks and valleys can be pretty steep you know the the population swings can be pretty severe and over time they'll flatten out and and the whole concept of wildlife management is to try to flatten out those peaks and valleys in in uh populations so that you don't have big swings like we, I think we also talked about disease outbreaks and, and white-tailed deer. Um, I saw EHD in Ohio, and we just saw it here in northern Idaho last summer, too. Um, EHD is transmitted by flying bugs. In Ohio, bot flies transmitted it. Here, a, a midge transmits it. And when we get really dense populations of deer... And a dry year, they will localize around watering holes. And the the higher the population, the the quicker the rate of disease transmission between the animals. And um, you know, when the one thing we could do in in terms of wildlife management is to lower the overall population of whitetail in those areas that are prone to EHD outbreaks, the valleys where there's a lot of water, and uh, and and high density populations, you know, and, and it, it, we can use that as an opportunity to get the buck to doe ratio, you know, back in line. So it's closer to one to one instead of you know, one to five or more one to 10. You know, if you, if you have one to one buck to doe ratios, you get really big bucks and your populations are a little bit more stable. So those are all tools, wildlife managers and the trappers are kind of brought in, to try and um, try and control the ratio of of prey uh, on those specific species. That's usually what we get called in to do. So, um, if I could, um, forgive me for bouncing around a little bit. I know we're talking about apex predators, but in Ohio, I grew up in an area that it was known for raccoons. It was it was loaded with raccoons, and we had a an outbreak of rabies. And one of the things that we discussed, uh, I was opposed to it. So in, in free roaming wildlife populations, what controls animal populations? Predators. And if not predators, then it's usually disease or starvation, availability of food. Well, the, the health department in Ohio stepped in because they had the authority to, and they decided to vaccinate 
the wild population of raccoons. So they were literally shoveling oral rabies vaccine out of a plane that was flying in quarter mile transects across the affected area. And they did it every year from that point forward. And what happened was they just basically took one of the large, you know, fail safe population control mechanisms out of the equation. Rabies is a, is a, about 100% lethal in raccoons. It pretty much kills all and everyone that contracts it. And they just inoculated that species from rabies so that that kind of fail-state, end-of-the-line control mechanism for their population went away. Well, the unintended consequence of that is anything that's a ground-nesting, egg-laying species got impacted in a negative manner. Waterfowl upland game birds, turtles, spotted turtles basically were extirpated from northern Ohio when that happened. Um, even snapping turtles, you know, their eggs would be dug up and eaten. So we have to be really careful when we make uh, decisions, especially decisions that can't be undone. We can have very unforeseen consequences, and it happens over and over again. That That's something, if you look at the efforts um, across the country to move wildlife from one area to another, there, there's frequently some unintended consequences there. And, and it's really hard to see them all coming. But boy, you can sure step in it and, and, and make a mess of things if you're not careful. Right. And once that, uh, you know, once you start going down that hill, it becomes a real slippery slope and it, it's hard to recover from it. Now, you know, you look down the road, if say the inoculations cease and those raccoons, you know, inherently become susceptible to rabies again, then it will take hold. But what you're playing with is, you know, is forces that we can't control because next thing you know, some other disease mutates because there is a way that they are going to get controlled. And, you know, one of the, one of the references I use a lot and you used it in the class is the relationship between the lynx and the snowshoe hare. It is a huge boom bust cycle um, with their population management and how I've always kind of looked at that um, particular um, dynamic is if you bring in trappers or hunters or whoever it may be to control you know when there's a mass of that population it gives you more of a steady flat line with small hills and valleys than these giant um you know arches and dives if you will you know and you have to meter that you know i i went to wyoming uh, animal hunting a couple times, and I talked to their fish and game officers, and, and he would say, "Yeah, you know what? We uh, we had real problems with sheep predation, so we we aerial shot coyotes last year." And he said, "Every time we aerial shoot coyotes, then he said we got so many antelope, the farmers are upset because they're not losing the the fawns to the coyotes." Then, so you know, try. I you would think that we would learn that we shouldn't play God, you know. We're, we don't have all 
a little bit arrogant about that. I I listened to a speech from a, an incredibly smart man named Tom Stanley. He was the director for the Cleveland Metro Parks for their natural resources for years. And he said, you know, we talk about managing wildlife. And he's like, it's a little bit arrogant. He was like, the truth be told, we just nudge it. And I thought that was such a responsible statement. Because really, you know, do we want to catch so many links that we have a, a, a boom in the hair population where they get tularemia and die? No. So we really just want to nudge it. We want to flatten the curve, you know, flatten those peaks and valleys a little bit, not too much. And then we're trying to, we, we need to try and establish the parameters, you know, how many, what's the real carrying capacity. And there's no magic number that those numbers are in a constant state of flux. When you're managing wildlife, you really want to know, is that population going up or is that population going down and why? Then you can start to make some informed decisions. But until you have that information, you're meddling. You know, you got to be really careful what you do. Um, and and we've, well, we've made a bunch of mistakes with, I think, trying to do the right thing. I think an awful lot of these things have, have kind of blown up in our face when we tried to do the right thing. Um, you know, the, the nutria population in, in southern U.S., a, a family brought them here from South America and was raising them on a farm for their fur. And then a hurricane hit and blew the cages apart. And now we have, you know, in, an invasive species throughout the swamps, causing millions of dollars worth of erosion every year in canals. And, um, Nobody wanted to do that. It just it just kind of happened. But we have a tendency to screw things up when we when we pretend that we know best. And uh, that's that's uh, something we need to kind of look in the mirror about from time to time. I think I think moving animals in big blocks in the areas might be about done philosophically. I mean, it might still go on a little bit, but you know, in Ohio, we didn't have any coyotes when I was a kid. We had red fox, we'd catch red fox. And then when I was in my late teens, early twenties, I started noticing every once in a while, I'd have a red fox and I'd get there and the thing was just shredded. I mean, it was in chunk, you know, the biggest chunk was two inches and it it wasn't dogs. Dogs had run up to a fox in a, a fox in a trap, and they'd they'd bite it across the the rib cage and shake it and kill it. And you'd have a big crushing bite, you know, right over their their ribs. But this was totally different. And uh, but there were canine trap bigger bigger canine tracks when that happened. And I talked it over with some wildlife officer friends and and uh, wildlife management friends and said, I'm pretty sure we got like a coyote or a brush wolf or something moving in. And it, it, and about five, six years later, the state admitted that they were getting road, you know, pictures and roadkill uh, examples of coyotes. And um, then they got blamed. You know, then people started going, oh, the state's stocking coyotes to, to kill deer. And that wasn't true. It happened at a point in time when, the deer population was growing, not really fast, but very stable in a long controlled glide up. And at the same time, the National Wild Turkey Federation had um, reintroduced wild turkeys to Ohio. 
And their population was going up quickly because it was excellent habitat for turkeys. Combination of hardwood forests with mass crops and large ag fields, it was absolutely ideal for both deer and turkey. So Ohio hit this critical biomass where it finally had enough free roaming wildlife in terms of deer and turkey to support a coyote population. And over a period of 20 years, the coyotes just naturally diffused into Ohio from neighboring states. And when that happens, there are fewer problems because you don't get that initial real spike like we talked about in the class. The, the deer had time to learn how to cope with coyotes and, and they were able to survive. So it, I think hopefully moving forward, as a philosophically, we're a little bit more careful about about painting with a broad brush stroke on stuff like that because it has a tendency to turn around and and bite us. No, and that that's something that I'm glad you said, Scott. I didn't want to just come out and say we're we're acting as God, but humans tend to do that. Humans tend to have that idea that we can do this and we can fix it and we can make it right and you know some of the worst things in the world happen with the best intentions in mind and it it, the way you put it we need to nudge it we need to just put a little influence here or a little um sprinkle there yeah i want to give tom stanley credit for that because that was one of the most profound wildlife management statements i ever heard that was just a very responsible way of looking at it Right. We, and that, I think people don't have an understanding to on, on the, on all of this, that wildlife management is a very, very tricky thing. It's not just, oh, we, we reintroduce them. They can eat and do well. There's so many little different factors, um, that, that just go into play. And unfortunately <laughs> humans are the, the cause for most of those. And it, it, it's a little unnerving, you know, I, I think what people need to do is step back from the emotional side of it and really pay attention to the science because the science isn't wrong. The science says this is happening or that's happening and we have to figure out why, obviously. Um, but it, there's there's been this detachment, if you will, from living with the wildlife. You know, and when I say living with the wildlife, I don't mean oh, we just go out and we don't hurt the wildlife, we don't harvest the wildlife, we don't any of that. I'm saying there there is a balance, and humans are factored into that equation. We are, um, we talked a little bit in the class about modeling and, um, I'm, I'm getting old, but I, I had some formal training in biology once upon a time. I, I have a degree in biology and the concept of modeling is now being used over, it's used all over the place in science now, but the modeling is as good as the moderate. Whoever builds that model whatever um whatever they didn't think of 
or thought too much of is reflected in that model. You know, so um, without starting something controversial here, let's just take something like, uh, well, let's just stick with the, the wolf issue. So let's say we have good modeling on the impact that if we have a, an enclosed population of elk and we, you know, like a, oh, there's a mountain or a, a island in Lake Superior. I can't think of the name of it right now. I'll, it'll come to me where they did a longstanding project where they had they had moose on the island and they had wolves on the island. And it was one of the most studied populations because it was you could actually get a physical count of each species and then track how much they impacted each other. Um, it, it, if uh, if you do that, you have hard data. If you do a model, you try to base it on hard data, but you have to make some assumptions. And usually those models can take in a couple of variables, maybe three or four, but most of the time they're um, they're fairly basic. They're they're um, they're not they're not complicated. So, if you take a, a a a single axis model that's really just focusing on a couple populations, and you plug that if it basically a static model of some kind, and you plug that into a dynamic environment like the ecosystem that we're talking about here in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. There are all kinds of factors that are extremely difficult to measure accurately. So let's just take the, the wolf elk population. So the wolves start keying on the elk and the moose and they're preying on them. That then shifts the the focus of the mountain lions in the region. They still go after elk when they get a chance, but there's not as many of them. So now they start focusing on white-tailed deer. And so the white-tailed deer population gets impacted um we have evidence now that wolves are digging out um bear while they're hibernating and killing them and eating them they're they're going after black bears while they're hibernating um i don't think anybody anticipated some of those things when they were designing the the, the model to justify doing all this and th those are the kinds of things you know the people that are making the decision to do some of the stocking or, or not do it, you know, if we're going to introduce or reintroduce a species, um, they have to bat a thousand, a hundred percent of the time in order to not do any harm. And that's just statistically not going to happen. It's just not. And um, that that's a harsh reality. And we have to, I think moving forward, we just have to recognize that and say, look, this is a projection. This is the our best guess at this point in time. But the truth is, we don't know. We don't know what the long-term impact is going to be. Um, could be great. Could be. And then we get into now. Now the politics kick in. You know, so we have some protracted program to uh, bring back. You know. The short-faced bear, which has been extinct for 10,000 years. But say we have the ability to do it and somebody makes the case for doing it. Well, now they can't afford to be wrong. So they, they have to come. Do you remember hearing about the documentary in Yellowstone, how um, the reintroduction of wolves had uh, 
had lowered the moose and, and elk population enough that the aspen groves were coming back along the rivers, which allowed the bee. Largely discredited by the people that were collecting the data, but it was important to have a feel-good story about the wolves to justify everything that was going on around Yellowstone. That kind of stuff where the the social impacts or the social goals of people really start impacting the science. What's actually happening in the when, when I lived in Ohio, I heard nothing but positive stories about wolves in the Pacific Northwest. It was all sunshine and unicorn tears. You know, it was all beautiful what was happening. And then you come out and talk to people that actually live where that's going on, and you get a whole different perspective. Um, I think that's common sometimes. So there are perils associated with doing stuff like this. And and I, you and I have uh, have talked about the the concept of the of carrying capacity, the the scientific carrying capacity. In other words, in a a, a square mile of hardwood forest, you can support twenty five head of white tailed deer without sustainably without having a negative impact on the the mast crops and the the deciduous forage for the deer in that area that it'll support the biology at, at that many deer, the forest can sustain itself in the same basic condition. Um, well, that, that was the, the yardstick or the metric for wildlife management for years. And then all of a sudden it, it switched to a concept called social carrying capacity Back in the 90s, 80s and 90s, that started happening. And what that basically means is, you know, how many deer are we willing to tolerate hitting with our car before our insurance company goes, yeah, if you don't do something about the deer population, we're not going to cover you anymore. Or the farmers who have a very powerful lobby. Agriculture controls roughly 40% of the electorate in the United States. Um, in Ohio, we had people lobbying when we had 750,000 deer. We, the, the Ohio Department of Agriculture wanted it to be 250,000. They wanted to reduce the population, the median, the average, to one-third. Um, that's a social issue because farmers get losses associated with crop damage from deer. And so, so they apply social pressure to game agencies to try and increase the bag limit, increase the length of the season, anything they can do to lower the overall population. And that's where the, the science has a tendency to bump into the social needs or the social goals in a, in a region. And that, and that is a, a serious pressure on game agencies at this point. Um, and that, and it's, makes it very difficult for the scientists, the biologists that are working on those issues. And sometimes the science takes a back seat. It does. No, and it that's a great way of, of explaining it, Scott, because there's there's so many different what ifs. You know, it's not just that static model, it's a dynamic model and it looks more like a spider web. Everything you know, it, it's a chain reaction between different things, whether you're talking about prey availability, whether you're talking about a disease outbreak in a prey or a predator species, 
parrotism, uh, you know, confrontation with ag and, and humans and cars, that social dynamic. There's so much that goes into this that it, it, it it's almost unfathomable to try and, you know, make all the links. I wish, I wish we could, you know, but it's a never ending. Everything has an impact on something else. And when we as humans go in and throw this big old bomb in there, man, it just scatters it all to pieces. And not saying that that's, you know, that happens both ways in in everything and that we're not only to blame because there's so many different factors. You know, a wildfire goes through an area, that changes the dynamic. A drought happens, you know, whatever it may be. Now you get a 11 years worth of indu- uh, worth of particulates from produced by all of the industrial countries in the world you get 11 years worth of particulate air pollution by one volcanic event you know how do you plan for that you can't you know i mean uh, they, people often talk about just how fragile nature is you know oh, we can't we can't let that steelhead season open until another week goes by or we can't keep it open for another week because we're going to mess up the balance and it's all going to fall apart. Um, I would argue, and I have a good example of this. I would argue that nature is unbelievably resilient. So I grew up East of Cleveland, Ohio, and running through the middle of Cleveland is a river called the Cuyahoga, which is an Indian word that means crooked river. There was a big industrial area in Cleveland when I was just born, and it was called, it's called the Flats. And there were steel mills and auto manufacturing plants and all kinds of big industry on this river. And the river was very polluted. And right about the time I was being born, that river caught on fire. There was so much residual oil from all the machines that were... You know, they would cool some of the metalworking machines with water from the river, and then they discharge that water right back to the river. So whatever oils were on the metal and stuff would end up going into the stream. It was terrible pollution. So bad that the river caught on fire. And the, the city made the national news for the river, actually visual photographs, video of the river burning. And um, it was a black eye for Cleveland, and it was terrible. And and it did, you know, the one thing that happened from that is millions of dollars in state and federal funding got funneled into the region to do conservation work to to regulate and, and to regulate those industries. So f- fast forward 50, 55 years forward, and uh, that same river now has a steelhead run on it. Same river. Um, and it's pretty darn resilient if you get out of the way and just let it reclaim itself it'll it'll be okay you know and that's that's something that we don't like to accept as people we just like you said we want to run in on the right white horse and fix it and a lot of times we'd be better served just just letting nature take its course be okay Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better, Scott. But it, uh, it nature is extremely resilient in that sense. You know, I this might sound funny or cheesy or whatever, but, uh, you know, one of the most famous lines out of Jurassic Park is nature will always find a way. And that is so 
true. And we see it every day. If, you know, you you look at examples of uh, Chernobyl, you know, that place has been evacuated for decades and they go in there and nature's just doing its thing. It's reclaiming the buildings. There's, there's animal populations. It will recover from these drastic, you know, disasters. What we as humans need to do is not try, again, nudge, not throw, you know, it's throwing a pebble into the puddle, not a boulder. Yeah, yeah that's a good way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, the Chernobyl example is, is a good one to me. I mean, it, it uh, I don't even know how long it's been. I think it's been close to 30 years, but it, it's actually doing pretty well where they've just left it be. Now you'll probably have residual genetic mutations for decades, but that's not stopping the organisms that live there from living there. They're doing it. They're, 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 they're making it happen. And that, that's the kind of thing, you know, I, I, I often wonder how long it will take for, uh, for nature to reclaim major cities after something catastrophic happens, you know, like a, you know, a tidal wave or so it's something huge that would require the city be abandoned. Um, I think it might surprise us how quickly it reverts back. I really do. I think, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of plants that lay dormant in the, in the seed bank um, for decades. You know, I, I've done some wetland restoration work and stream restoration work. And the way that works with the EPA is they give you a, a list of species that have to be planted when you do that. And it, the plantings often are ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 an acre. They're very expensive. And it doesn't matter what you plant there. It really doesn't because within five years, whatever seeds are in the seed bank, they're going to win. They're going to outcompete whatever you plant because they are already genetically predisposed to the moisture, the soil type, the amount of sunlight, the severity of winter. They were already there. So they were already thriving there. And they will outcompete the species that are that are planted there kind of artificially. Um, and that that's something that always cracked me up. I've done and made incredible marshes just by going into some marginal ag land and crushing some tiles and building some levees and you can revert it back in less than a year. I mean, you can really get it back to a wetland pretty fast. Um, and I've done some commercial wetland restoration that was $60,000 an acre by the time you jump through all the hoops. But at the, bo- at the bottom line is nature's going to find a way and you really don't have to go too nuts. It's going to do it anyway. All you have to do is provide favorable conditions and get out of the way. You know, it'll it'll get it. Well, I couldn't have said that better, Scott. That's uh yeah, that that's the basis of it. And you know, again, like I said, maybe we need to just step back a little bit on on some of this stuff and not try and influence um our will upon it. Well, Scott, do you got uh, you got anything else you want to say? I think we pretty much covered, you know, what uh, at least what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, I can talk about wildlife all day long. So I uh, I appreciate the chance to have a discussion. It's fun. I 
we're kind of losing the art of discussion. Everybody's got their nose buried in their computer and their phone all the time. And we forget to sit down around the fire and have a chat. And a lot of times you can, you can learn stuff when you do that. We used to do it more often and I think we need to get back to it. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Well, everybody, if you like the show, um, I ask that you please leave a good review on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, Google Podcast. If uh, you want to write into the show or you have questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at organtrapperpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys next week.